The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. If you uh, want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, um, or if you've got one of the scripture journals there, you're more than welcome to open there as well, <clears throat> or your phones, or whatever you use. Um, we're going to be starting a new series this morning in John's Gospel, and um, we're going to be in this Gospel for a while. Uh, we're going to take some breaks as we go, or break for Christmas, or break here and there for other series, little mini things, or Easter, and, but we're probably going to be still in John in a couple of years' time. We're, we're going to kind of walk our way, work our way slowly through this uh, very thick, very rich, very wonderful book of God's Word. Um, and like I said, that we do have those ESV and CSV scripture journals um, there for you to use. Um, John, the, the writer of this gospel, John was one of the closest people to Jesus. He was one of the people who, who spent the most amount of time and had the closest proximity with Jesus while he walked on earth. There were, the, of course, the large crowds that followed Jesus, and then you had a, a smaller group that was kind of the more dedicated followers of Jesus who stuck with him. Within that, there was 72 disciples, and then within them, there was 12 particular disciples who we know um, quite famously. And then even within those 12, there was three disciples who were particularly close with Jesus, Peter, James, and of course, John. John was one of the, one of the disciples who was the closest with Jesus. He, he spent a lot of time with him. We have four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four historical accounts of Jesus' life. But amongst them, John is quite unique. He's so unique, in fact, that, they, that scholars often lump the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, into their own category and call them the synoptic gospels because they are quite similar to one another. But John is quite different. John includes a whole lot of extra details, a whole lot of extra stories that we don't find in the others. And John leaves out stories that we do find in the others. And that's because, that's, there's a couple of the reasons. Firstly, John was writing from his own very unique perspective as being someone incredibly close to Jesus. But also, John had a very specific and clear goal in mind. And when you read John's Gospel, he actually tells us what that goal is. He tells us this in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. It says, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So he, he's been selective. He's, he's including certain things and not including others. <clears throat> he says in verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John put this together using the specific parts that we have here so that we would believe, so that we would believe. He wants his readers to believe in Jesus, we, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing that, we would have life in his name. He wants us to be convinced, to believe, to build our life upon, to grab hold of and not let go of the fact that Jesus is the king. He's the hero. He's the, he's the one who, who he, God sent into the world as, as, the, as the solve for man's greatest problem, the sin which separated us from God. 
He wants us to believe that Jesus is the King, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, believe that Jesus is who he, it is written down here that he is, and that by believing those things, we would have life. Not just air in our, brun- air, air in our lungs and, and uh, sorry, breath in our lungs and blood running through our veins life, but life to the full. Life to the fullest. Life where we, we know, oh, this is actually what it means to live. I feel like I'm not living my life in regret. Life. And so a good principle to ask as we walk through this book of John is, in what way does this passage, whether we're reading John 1 verse 1 or 3.16 or chapter 7 verse 4 or anything, in what way does this passage help me to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and how does that bring me life? Because if it is John's goal that by reading these things we would believe and have life, we should expect to see that everywhere. We should expect to see that coming, evidence of that, John trying to help us understand that. And here in verse 1, which we're going to look at in just a second, is no exception. John is going to come flying out of the gates with this. Like if you you were to go for a run or try and do a marathon, you should probably stretch and do a warm-up beforehand. But John doesn't do a stretch. John doesn't do a warm-up. He launches into it, and we're all going to get sore hamstrings in our minds from reading this because he's just going to come flying out of the gates. John is building the foundation. He's going to load up the front end of his gospel here with loads of heavy-duty reinforcement for this foundation. So I'm just going to read the first nine verses this morning, but we're only going to spend our time today in just the first two. We'll read all nine together, Joe, just so that um, we, we can see it as a unit, as a whole. Um, and one of the things that John um, does throughout his... John does all the time is that... He's constantly talking um, multi-layered um, depth, uh, richness, uh, fullness. He's, he's talking in, in great, grand, uh, significant ways. And at the same time, it's easy to understand. It's, it's simple to follow. Uh, it's often said of John's gospel that it is deep enough to submerge an elephant entirely and it is shallow enough for a toddler to be able to splash around in safely. That is, you can. It, there's no, there's no like end to how deep this goes. You can read it again and again and find newness and newness in it, and then you can also find it's very easy to understand and comprehend. This densely packed text, it's full of goodness. One theologian even claimed that these first, uh, this, this opening um, prologue of John's Gospel is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all the Scripture, which is why we're only going to look at the first couple of verses today. So I'm going to read it, <clears throat> John chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, just to begin with. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that as we look at your word, as we examine this wonderful ancient text, that we would see marvelous things. That where we might have grown complacent or lethargic with passages that we've read a thousand times, that Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring newness into our life through them this morning. Holy Spirit, be with us. We, We ask for your guidance. We ask for your clarity over this. We thank you and praise you for these things, Lord. Amen. Have you ever discovered something new about someone that you didn't otherwise know and it kind of blew you away? Um, Our youngest son, uh, Banjo, he's something of an athlete. And it was one of those things that we didn't know how good he was as an athlete until he started playing team sports and started scoring goals. And we were like, oh, wow, you're really good at this. Um, That's really, and we've got to sometimes keep his ego in check because he's starting to believe that now. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm really good at this. We're like, yeah, you're not that good. Just take take it down a notch. Um, But when you discover something about somebody you didn't know, and it's like, that's really, really cool. Or or maybe, have you ever discovered something new about someone you've known for a long time? Sorry, it wasn't that you, you discovered something new. It's something that you always knew, but you suddenly saw them in action, and it just blew you away. You suddenly saw their skill set. You saw them doing what they, what they do best. And you're like, wow, I didn't realize you were that good. I'm, I've always known this about you. I didn't realize you were that good. Uh, last year, um, my, my sister is a nurse. And she's been a nurse for 25 years or something like that. And I've always known that she's a nurse. It wasn't a surprise to me last year when I saw her doing her nursing thing. But I had the opportunity to witness her for a few days being a nurse and being the professional that she is. And I was like... Oh, right, you're a nurse. Oh, I've always known that, but I didn't realize how good you were at this and how um, just completely proficient and uh, competent you are at this. And my hope is that we will feel the same way about Jesus after this. That, that we will read this and we'll go over this, that it might be familiar to us. It might be something that we've seen a thousand times. It might be something that is totally new to us. Like you might be here and you've, you've never been to church before. You've never, uh, you've never sat in church before and this is totally new to you. My hope is that you're going to see this and go, wow, this is amazing. He is so much better than I once thought. John's going to front load his gospel here with some massive claims about Jesus, with some of the most significant, probably the most significant claim that anyone has made about any person in the history of the world. He's going to claim that, one, Jesus was eternally pre-existent. He's going to claim that, two, Jesus Christ was eternally in relationship with God. And he's going to claim that, three, Jesus Christ is eternally God. Like, have you ever spoken to a kid, talked to a kid, and they've tried to explain things in the most superlative ways. 
bajillion. That's a word that gets thrown around way too easily in my house, bajillion. Like, I don't think my kids know what a bajillion is, but um, I don't think we've got a bajillion of anything or we've ever experienced a bajillion of anything. I don't even know if it's a real number. Um, but it's used in this context. Like, it's my turn. He's had a bajillion turns already. And, like, I don't think you know what bajillion means if you use it because it's been three. He's had three turns of it, so you just calm down. But John is going to use language that is that kind of superlative, but it's real. It's true. He's going to take us into the realm of infinity. It's not superlative. It's perfectly descriptive. He begins like this. He says, in the beginning. Now, if we've got some kind of vague familiarity with God's word, we'll know that those are the exact same words that our Bibles begin with in Genesis 1.1. Where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On the one hand, John is just express, simply saying, this is the beginning of the story. He's, he started at the beginning. But on another level, on a much deeper level, John is making an incredible observation and a massive declaration. This is the first point. Jesus was eternally pre-existent. By using these words, in the beginning, John is telling us that this story of Jesus goes way, way back. It didn't just start 2,000 years ago. It goes way, way back. Way before David, way before Abraham, way before Adam and Eve even. It predates existence. It predates dates. John is talking about a time that came before the existence of anything. About a time and a space before time and space or anything existed. He's talking about the, the period of nothingness before God spoke. Now, our minds might do their best to try and imagine what nothingness is, but they will eventually collapse in exhaustion. Like when I think of nothingness, I think of a, a black expanse, of a vast black expanse with nothing in it or on it. But black is a color, and that's something, so it can't be there. And expanse is a unit of measurement, and that's space, and so that can't be there. So the, my mind throws in the towel and goes, like, we can't do this. This is the time before anything. This, in the beginning, is the realm where John starts the story of Jesus. This, in the beginning, is where Jesus was before time and before space. Jesus existed before existence. He is pre-existent. In the beginning makes a bajillion look like a grain of sand. And here's where this is just so important for us. Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have committed offense. We have committed a rebellion against God. And Jesus came to absorb God's just wrath and punishment on our behalf, and to, and to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus, to make us righteous, to clean us up, to wipe our record of debt completely clean, to remove our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west, and to make us His children, and to bestow the blessings of heaven upon us. And, to, and for him to be our king. And John is saying that the, that the fount of our salvation, the, the, the beginning of that, the source of all of that, the conception of our salvation existed before existence. 
The Apostle Paul says just pretty much the same thing in Ephesians 1, 4. He says, For He chose us in Him. That's God the Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. And in Titus 1, Paul says that God, who cannot lie, promised eternal life before time began. Friends, if you've ever been worried that you've pushed God too far or that God's love might run out for you, you need to remember, we all need to remember that God's love for us is older than the sun. We won't wear him out. We won't wear out his love. You won't uh, cause his love to tick over and reach its end. It's his love for you. He chose us before the foundation of the world. You're not going to make his love run out. You're not going to make his. You're not going to find the end of his patience. If you're anything like me, you're going to doubt God's love and patience and mercy and grace towards you. And we need to repent of that, brothers and sisters. Don't doubt God's love. It's foolishness. It's crazy to doubt God's love. In the beginning. That's where we begin. And then the next part of the sentence then goes in a, in a direction that we might not expect. See, if, if, we, if, we, to, if he were to continue quoting Genesis 1.1, we might expect John to say, in the beginning, God. But he doesn't say that. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And what's cool here is that the, the words in the beginning, they would have captured the attention of any Jewish reader that was reading it because they would have been familiar with Genesis. They would have gone, oh, I know exactly what John's talking about here. But then when he uses this phrase, was the word, is that this would have been for any Greek reader reading this. They would have known exactly what John was talking about then. This would have grabbed their attention. See, the word or the logos, which is the word that John uses there, for the Greek, that was, the logos is the underlying principle or logic or meaning behind everything. And John is saying that, there, that yes, there is an underlying principle. There is an underlying meaning behind the universe. This is not just some kind of cosmic crazy accident. There is meaning, but it's not just meaning. It's not just a principle. John is going to take, John's going to take it to a new place and say this, this word is a person. The word is not just a something, but a someone who can be known. John uses a very similar title for Jesus in Revelation 19 where he sees in a vision the triumphant hero, the triumphant king of the universe, Jesus. He shows up on a white horse. And John says, its rider, the horse's rider, is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word is Jesus. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, he was effectively saying, in the beginning was Jesus. But why on earth would John choose to use this title, the Word, the Logos, to refer to Jesus' pre-existence? He could have used a whole bunch of different words there, and they would have made complete sense. He could have said, in the beginning was love. We would have accepted that. He could have said, in the beginning was truth. That would have been fine for us. 
He could have said, in the beginning was God, or was the Son of God, or was the Messiah, or whatever. Why did he choose the word? Well, the thing about words is that we need words to express ourselves, to communicate, to, to tell other people who we are. If I was to introduce myself to you and didn't use words, it would be difficult and really awkward. And I'm not just talking about spoken words. Like we can, like sign language come, falls under this category. It's communication as well. If you and I want to build a stronger relationship with one another, but don't speak to one another, don't communicate with one another, there's going to be a limit for us. We need words to make ourselves known. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's telling us that God is making himself known. This is how God has always made himself known. This is just one of the most incredible, exciting things. God wants to make himself known. He communicates himself to us that we might actually come to know him, understand him, and get to know him in the same way that we would get to know somebody else. And this is how God has always been doing things. He's always made himself known. He made himself known in creation. That we would see all of creation around us. And that, that creation, the, the leaves and the trees and the waves and the tides and everything, the mountains, point us towards God. And that was created by his word. God spoke those things into being. When God spoke to his people, he would speak through the prophets. We read things like, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And it's God's word that saves people. When God's people were on the brink of death, in Psalm 107, it says that God sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from their traps. When we read about the word, we should hear it as God's self-expression in creation, in revelation, and in redemption, that God is making himself known. He's saying, this is who I am. Our God is not mute. He does not stand at a, at a distance. He's not a, a God somewhere in the clouds that we can kind of vaguely know about and hope to, to kind of find our way to him at some stage. No, he's a God who wants to make himself known, to introduce himself to us. If you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this. God wants to introduce himself to you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be able to call him Father. He wants you to know that you can do that, not because of something you've done or because there's something in you, but because he sent his son to save you from your sin. God wants to make himself known. He's the God of relationship. And this is the second point, that Jesus was eternally in relationship. So first point, Jesus was eternally pre-existent. Now, Jesus was eternally in relationship. John goes on to say that the word was with God. The word wasn't just something that God spoke. The word was someone that God was with. But John's meaning is a lot deeper than just the standard usage of the word with. Like with is a word that we throw around really, you know, flippantly. Well, of course we do. Like, would you like fries with that? Like, do you want chips with dip? Like, we say with all the time. But John means something quite more deeper and, and, and wonderful. 
a number of years ago, I went to a conference uh, over in New Zealand. A, a buddy of mine was um, kind of in the know, and he, he got invited to go there a day early, and I was going with him, so I, I went with him for the, the day before. And um, uh, there was this dinner with all the keynote speakers, and I have to confess that I didn't know who these keynote speakers were. I was kind of new to this world, and so I, I, I went there, and one of the keynote speakers was a guy named James White. And um, some of you will know who James White is. Others of you, like me, once upon a time, didn't. Um, and so I, we just had a, I was sat there and we had a, a very small conversation. Uh, it was about tattoos. Um, and I was like, we had a chat about it. It got a little bit awkward. Um, and then we started talking to someone else. I since found out, though, that James White is a bit of a big deal for a lot of people, and um, I've got some of his books on my bookshelf now, and, um, I, and I've now used that story to kind of name drop whenever I kind of want, want, want to one-up my, one myself in a conversation with somebody, and I'll say something like, oh, yeah, I was having this conversation with James White, and, um, you know, we are just hanging out, you know, me and James, we go way back, and, uh, like, when... when, when, when John writes that the word was with God. He means a lot more than the same thing that I say, I was with James White, because we had a random conversation and that was it, and he would never be able to remember me for the rest of his life. It wasn't that Jesus shared the same, occupied the same space as God. It's actually, it's not just the nearness or proximity, but, but it, that word expresses movement towards one another. The eternal Father and the eternal Son were not just cohabiting the same space with one another. Rather, they were eternally face to face, eternally drawing closer to one another, eternally moving towards one another with perfect and unbroken and untainted love for one another. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, although he's not mentioned here, have been in perfect, perpetual, and beautiful relationship with one another from eternity past. There was never a time that God was not enjoying this perfect, harmonious relationship within the Trinity. That was, of course, until Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I remember one speaker saying, It's the first time that Jesus ever spoke and the Father didn't reply that Jesus on the cross was separated from his Father, separated from an eternal union. We, we sing that song, don't we? How great the pain of Syrian loss, the Father turns his face away. We can speculate, but I think the pain of being separated from his Father relationally there far outweighed the stripes on his back, the thorns in his skull, and the nails in his hands. The one who had enjoyed perfect relationship within the Godhead came to earth. And as Paul says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was eternally pre-existent. Jesus was eternally in relationship with the Father. And now John is going to take one step further and going to make the most extravagant claim of all. This is the third point. Jesus is eternally God. This is outstanding. The Word was God, John says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. We might breeze past a statement like this, but this is absolutely outrageous. It's as incredible as it is outrageous. 
This is like someone saying, I have the sun in my pocket. Like, what, do you mean you've got some daylight down there? No, I've just got the sun in there. Do you mean like you've got a picture of the sun, a little model of the sun? What do you mean? No, I've got the sun in my pocket. That great big ball of light in the sky that, you know, is, you know, a billion, a bajillion megatons of nuclear energy, whatever it is. I've got that in my pocket. We would say, good for you, mate. <laughs> like, you need to get your head checked because that's not true. Um, that's the level of claim that John's making here when he says that the word Jesus was actually God. Because John is talking about a man that he knew. He's talking about a guy that he shared meals with. They sailed together. They prayed together. They wept together. They laughed together. John is saying that this old friend of his was actually the eternal God of the universe. He's making this claim that this bloke who he rubbed shoulders with was actually the eternal God of the universe. He wasn't just uh, a man who he shared the company of he shared the company of God. He actually was God. He is infinite power and he is infinite wisdom and knowledge and insight and presence and goodness and mercy and grace and love with flesh. And this is one of the things that makes John's gospel quite distinct amongst the others. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they present Jesus, um, they present him in his, humanity, in his humanity to begin with. They begin with his bloodlines, with his ancestry. They begin with his humanity. And they build the case over the course of their gospels, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man actually was God. They, they start down low and they build their way up to heaven. But John goes the opposite direction. He starts with the deity of Jesus Christ and then he shows what it looks like when God puts on flesh and comes down to earth and, and dwells amongst us. What, this, what the second person of the Holy Trinity is like when he puts on flesh and becomes a man. This is a truly outrageous claim. And it's true. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. God left footprints on this earth, physical footprints that got swept away by somebody else's footprints who trod that path a few seconds later. Isn't that just a crazy thought? Like, it, my mind is pull, just pulled a hammy. Like, it's, it's just, it's hard to get our heads around. See, what John's doing here is he's dipping his toe into the mystery of the Holy Trinity. God is one being in essence, and we should not seek to divide him. And he is also three persons, and we should not confound them. The Father is a distinct person. The Son is a distinct person, and the Spirit is a distinct person. But they are one in divinity, equal in glory, and co-eternal in majesty. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. And there are not three gods. There are one God. There is one God. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. And the Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Spirit is eternal. Yet there are not three uncreated, immeasurable, and eternal beings, but one uncreated, immeasurable, and eternal being. And each person of the Holy Trinity enjoys perfect intimacy within the Godhead. Or as my kids say, he's one 
and he's three, and he's one, and he's three, and he's one, and he's three. And we ought to worship the one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity. This is what John is dipping his toes into here when he says that the word was God. But then John says something in the next verse, we'll go to verse 2 now, that I think just takes us to a, just a crazy different level. He, John, John says, he was with God in the beginning. Now, that verse looks like it's simply just a repeat of everything that had been said. And it basically is. He, he's summing up his argument and ensuring that there's no way that we can misunderstand him. But there is one thing that's different about that verse, and that's this little personal pronoun, he. Now, it makes sense that John would say he because he's just simply referring to Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. But let's just consider how normal and boring that word he is. Like, I wonder how many times John referred to he without even thinking of it. Like in a conversation, hey, John, where's Jesus? He's... He's in the back of the boat. He's asleep. Oh, hey, John, you never actually told us what happened up on that mountain. Oh, yeah, well, he revealed his glory to us, to me and Peter and and James, and we, we saw his glory. Hey, John, what are we meant to do with all these leftovers? I don't know. He just said to put them all into these 12 baskets. Did you notice the word he in there? Like, it just kind of disappears. Like, it's not the main point. And that's kind of the point. He's just talking about Jesus as if he was his mate. And that's because he was. John knew what Jesus looked like. When Jesus was talking to John and John had his back turned to Jesus, John could tell that it was Jesus and not Peter because he knew what Jesus' voice sounded like. John knew what Jesus smelled like. He was able to speak of Jesus as his closest friend. In fact, John describes himself later on as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how close he knew him. And he says he was with God in the beginning. He is not just making a grand theological statement, and that is a grand theological statement. He's also just talking about his mate, talking about his friend. And this is the point. God has made himself known like this to us in the person of Jesus Christ. John has made himself known to us. Sorry, God has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus is going to say this later on in John 14. He will say, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, we've just got to look at Jesus. His word, his self-expression, the way he has made himself known. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the writer of Hebrews says that the Son, the Son Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint, expression of his nature. God is the creator of the entire universe. God is the creator of the entire universe, and when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. Psalm 8 tells us that the heavens are the work of God's fingers. That's stars, suns, galaxies, black holes, planets, everything, the biggest things in existence. That is intricate work to God, intricate work that he does with his fingers. God is not limited by space. He is always everywhere in all of his fullness. 
And he is not limited by time. There is no such thing as the present moment in which God is locked into like we are. The Bible describes God as being a consuming fire. You, you cannot draw close to you can you cannot draw near to God without being incinerated by the white hot holy perfection of his of his glory. Because we're sinners, we can't get close to him. An ice cube has a better chance of surviving on the surface of the sun than we do of as sinners entering into the presence of God. And this infinite God who answers to no one, who knows all things, and who is always everywhere, fully and all at once, who is always perfectly good in every decision, in every will, in every action, he has made himself known, not by sending down a message, but by coming as a person, a person that we can know just as John knew him. And friends, if if this is true, If this is true, if God's word is true as we as Christians declare it to be, then we cannot treat Jesus like a butler who is there to serve and guarantee our short-sighted ambitions and our small-minded desires. Too often we treat Jesus like some kind of post-it note on our lives. We, We occasionally glance at him, we make a bit of a note, mental note, okay, then we keep on going with our lives. We think to ourselves, if if Jesus was willing to get on board with my agenda, then I might give him some of my air time and my thoughts. But if I have to take my eyes off my goals and what I really want for, for my life, if I have to take my eyes off that stuff for him, stuff it. It's not I can't be bothered. Too often we treat Jesus as an add-on to our lives, imagining that he's some kind of boost pack for our agenda. But there is nothing in God's word that will allow us to believe that. John wrote this so that we would believe that he is the Messiah and the Son of God, so that we would come to agree that he is actually who he says he is and we can build our life on him. We are called to build our life on Jesus. That's what it means to believe. It doesn't just mean intellectual ascent to go, yeah, I, I generally kind of agree with everything. It's actually say, no, I'm going to cling to him. I'm going to build my life on him. I'm going to gamble everything on him. My entire life is going to be on the foundation of Jesus. I'm not going to hedge my bets. I'm not going to try and be good just in case this doesn't work out and God actually is expecting me to be a much better version of myself. No, I'm going to, I'm going to mount everything of my life onto his grace, onto his love, and onto his mercy. Jesus is, a, is big enough for us to build our life upon. John wrote this so that we would believe. And that by believing, by doing that, we would, we would find life in the name of Jesus. We would come to know full life, life to the full. And there is life in him. And because of this, there, this demands a response. We must do something about this. We can't walk away from this uh, and think that you know, I, I, we can just do whatever we want with it. It demands a response. Now, one way we can respond to this, and there's three ways really we, we can respond. One way is just to entirely reject this and ignore it altogether and say, no, none of this is true. I don't, I don't buy any of this. If that's you, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you say, no, I don't buy any of this, can I just... And, invite you to consider what if you're wrong can I invite you to just put it in your mind what if I'm utterly wrong about? what if I've been utterly wrong about Jesus and can I just invite you as well to know that you don't have to 
go, okay, well, if I want to accept this, then I've got to be better. I've got, I've got to improve my life. I've got to transform things. I've got to cut things out. I've got to become a better version of myself. Then God will accept me. No, that, that's not how you actually become a Christian. You, come, you become a Christian by going, I've, I've got nothing to give, and I come to him empty-handed. So if that's you, if, you, if you're the kind of person who goes, I don't buy any of this stuff, can I just invite you to reconsider? Consider you might be wrong. If I can be so bold, you are wrong. Let me be generous. You're right about a bunch of other things, but you're wrong about that. You're wrong about him. He is the king of the universe. He is the son of God. Another way that a lot of people respond to the gospel is they say, well, actually, that all sounds really feasible, and I can see actually how Jesus will fit into my life. Sure, I'm have to shift a few things around, but that's worth it if it means all my sins are forgiven. Where do I sign up? The problem with that, though, is that that's just another way of rejecting Jesus. We aren't given the option of including Jesus into our lives. He is either our king and our everything and our lives orbit around him, or he's nothing. We don't treat him as an add-on. We don't just slip him in. We don't just kind of go, okay, we'll just add this to the plethora of other things that have gone on. He is our king. He is our foundation. He is our everything, or he's nothing. The people who take this op- option often look incredibly religious, even fervent in their, in their faith. You can go to church. You can serve. You can give. You can do mission. You can obey God's commands. You can do it all. And you can tell that that's you if you're doing all of those things in order to build your own resume so that you've got something to wave in God's face on that day of judgment. If you're, if you're being a good person, if you're serving, if you're loving people, if you're doing all of that so that you, you can build a case for yourself on that day of judgment so when God comes to judge you, you can say, well, look at all the good things that I've done. You're going to find yourself, you're going to find yourself utterly lacking short. Utterly lacking, utterly falling short. If, you, if you've got a resume that you're hoping to give to God and on that resume is all the money you've given, all the, all the hours you've prayed, all the Bible you've read, all the missions you've served and all the things you've done and you look, look at all these things. Look, look at everything I've done for you, God. Now, hand me, hand me salvation. Hand me eternity. God's going to look at that and he's going to say, not enough. Not enough. All the good that we could ever do in our lives is not enough to erase an hour's worth of sin, let alone a lifetime of it. You might think, well, my sins aren't actually bad. And, and true, you could probably find someone who's done worse things than, than you. But the offense of sin is less about the action of sin and more about who it was committed against. And every sin that we have ever committed has been committed against a God who is infinitely innocent and perfectly holy, which makes every sin infinitely offensive and infinitely worthy of eternal punishment. But there is a third way, a third way to respond to this. It's the way of the cross, the way of belief. When we come to to Jesus knowing that we have nothing to offer and knowing that without him we are utterly lost, we have no hope of escaping the judgment of God on our own merit. And so we grab hold of Jesus and everything that he is and he becomes our righteousness. We love him. We adore him. We, he becomes our everything and our life revolves around him. We build our life on him. We, we, we cling to him and we don't let go. And we say, I've got nothing to bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. If God has made himself known 
through Jesus, it means that God is a redeemer. He means that God is the one who forgives sins, who gave his son so that we would be reconciled to him, so that he would be glorified. We must, if we want life, if we want to come to God, we must come through Jesus. We must come through the one who God sent. We must come through his word. We cannot get around Jesus. We must receive his grace and know that because of him, our sin is completely taken away from us when we put our faith in him. By simply coming and believing in him, we are washed clean. I'll finish this way. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, the man Christian has he's walked through the wicked gate. Jesus has removed his burdens and he's walking along the way. When all of a sudden, two men named Formalist and Hypocrisy leap over the fence and they join him on the walk. Christian protests, you must enter through the narrow gate. He's talking about Jesus. You cannot enter the celestial city unless you come by the way that the master of the city has commanded. The two men ignore Christian and they wander off the narrow way and into the way called danger and destruction. Friends, Jesus came to earth that we might know God and God cannot be known apart from Jesus. We cannot think that we can make our way to God without Jesus. We cannot think that we can just take the parts of Jesus that we like. The only way that we can be forgiven of our sin and absolved of our guilt is through Jesus Christ. The only way that we can be made righteous is by believing in Jesus Christ and build our life on him. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. It says, Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if, and, and as if I had as perfectly, I'd been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Friends, believe in Jesus. He was there before the creation of the world. He is there eternally with God, and he is God. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.